Our text this morning is Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And for context, let's read again, starting in verse 12, asking the Lord for His blessing. This is the word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. We don't come to it lightly, and we ask that the Lord would give us ears to hear. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. Hear the word of the Lord. Romans 8, 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed, or since indeed, we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. Amen. Father, again, we commit this time to You, trusting that, Lord, You are able and will accomplish all Your good pleasure as Your Word goes forth. I pray that Your Word would take deep root into the hearts of each one here and those listening. Father, that we would grow in Your grace, that You would transform us from being who we were to new creations in Christ, and that we would grow into His likeness even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in this section of Romans chapter 8, we have been looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God, uh, the ministry of the Spirit who has been sent into our hearts by the Lord to show us that we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are rather sons of God. All those who have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which is really the whole message of this letter of Romans, are those who are in Christ. Those who are in union with Christ, supernaturally joined to Him so that we partake of His life and His death and His resurrection and His sufferings. We saw last week that in the midst of the discussion on sonship, Paul reintroduces the theme of suffering, which he had uh, first introduced in chapter 5, verse 3. But now he's uh, opening this discussion from the perspective of our union with Christ because he wants us to understand what the nature of this suffering is. Last week we considered two of the three points that I had planned for the outline for the day. and The first was the certainty of the suffering of all believers. And we saw that Christ suffered simply because He was light coming into a dark world and exposing the evil deeds of men. And because of that, they hated Him. And they didn't only recoil from the light, but they attacked the light. They hated the light with such animosity that they tried to put out the light, to kill Him. And we saw that that really was the summary of His life from the very beginning on this earth, when He was incarnated, until the cross He had experienced truly the destructive nature of sin as a a blight, as a disease that had blanketed his beautiful world and turned the natural order that he had made into something vile, diseased, sick, and dying. We see this especially in the rejection of Jesus Christ. He came to His own, but His own received Him not. They did not recognize that He was the Prince of Life, that He was the promised Messiah from of old. Though God in the flesh was standing right before them in their sight, in their hearing, though He showed many marvels and signs to authenticate His message that He was the true messenger of God, they could not hear Him because they were sons of the devil, and it's the deeds of their father that they wanted to do. They preferred the lie to the truth. 
So Christ is known as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Everywhere he looked, he saw the tainting of sin and he suffered for sin. Not his own sin, he had no sin of his own, but for our sin and the sin in the devil who, John says, has been sinning from the beginning, the beginning of his rebellion. And the point is, because we are united to Christ, because we are in Christ, we too, every child of God, every brother and sister who is in Christ, will suffer in like manner. We also will strive against sin. And we saw that there's a spectrum of suffering, isn't there? There are various sources of suffering. There's, there's different degrees of suffering, like Insults, hatred, slander, loss of relationships, loss of job, loss of income, maybe even imprisonment or seizure of property or banishment from lands, maybe even death. And there's also different sources of suffering. The suffering comes from the world of men who are sinners because they've inherited Adam's original sin. The sin comes from the devil, and it's even in our own flesh. And it's on these three fronts that every Christian is engaged in a daily warfare because the Lord God has made us new. He has actually engaged us in this warfare. So there is a certainty of suffering for all believers. There is a spectrum of suffering. No one is exempt from it. If you are united to Christ, you are a suffering Christian, and you will be throughout your time on this earth until the Lord comes. This morning, we want to look at the third point. I'd like to consider with you the third point, which we didn't get to last week, which is the satisfaction of suffering. And as I thought about the text this week and what I wanted to share with you, I thought it might be more appropriate to change this third point to the sweetness of suffering rather than just the satisfaction of suffering because what I I hope to show you today is another way of thinking about suffering for Christ where we can understand and appreciate something of its sweetness. That is foreign to the ear as we first hear it, but I'm praying that the Lord will show us something of that sweetness because we need, brothers and sisters, fortitude, strength to endure the battles that we have been engaged in for a lifelong effort. Um, We need daily strength. And it's in God's providence, the knowledge that He has given us that is the very means by which He will deliver us by which He will give us the strength to endure and to conquer in these battles by His grace. So let's consider this morning, this message, the sweetness of suffering. And the questions I'd like to ask with you and answer together are these. Is there some redeeming purpose to all the suffering which has been for Christ's sake? The suffering that we are certain to endure. Is there some some sweetness, some point of rejoicing to which we can cling to help us in the suffering? And the answer in Scripture is a resounding yes. Yes. In fact, there are many consolations given in the Scripture, and I hope to show you some of them this morning. This is by no means comprehensive, but I hope to whet the appetite. So for the outline today, I want to consider four points with you as we think about the sweetness of the suffering. The first is, it prepares us for glory It prepares us for glory. Look with me at verse 17 of Romans 8. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, we saw last week that means since indeed, that's a fulfilled condition, since indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. That we may is a purpose clause. Paul is saying the ultimate reason for suffering with Christ is in order that we may be glorified together with Him. Brothers and sisters, this is the big idea that we need to keep in our minds with respect to suffering for Christ. It is purposed for our glory. 
You see, it's important to clarify also, Paul is not saying, as some people have understood, that our suffering in any way earns glorification. He's not saying we suffer in order that we would earn glory someday. No, just as our good works do not merit or earn any justification or any righteousness with the Lord, in the same way our suffering doesn't merit anything. What it does do, however, is it evidences our position with God, that we are in union with Christ, that we are in fact in union with Christ because just as he suffered, so we suffer. So what does it mean that we may be glorified together with Christ? Well, the key to answering that question is to understand the truth we've been talking about a few times, which is our union with Christ, our union with Christ. When we considered our sufferings with Christ, the question that we asked was to first look at, well, what are the sufferings of Christ? How did he suffer in order to understand something of our partaking in his sufferings? And the answer is he suffered for sin. Not his own, but our sin. And so we suffer for sin. Not, again, in a meritorious way, not trying to earn anything, but simply because we are in union with Christ, we are going to suffer in a similar way. And so when we are considering this question of, well, what is our glorification with Christ? We ask the same question. What is his glorification? Has Jesus been glorified already? And the answer is yes. We have a wonderful text on this in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to verses 8 and following in Philippians 2. This this refers to Jesus Christ. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is exalted now. He's glorified He's been raised to the highest heaven and seated at the right hand of power. The strength of God is His in all its fullness. And all are under His feet. And He will reign until even the last enemy is finally put under His feet, which is death itself. So He is King of kings and Lord of lords now. He's glorified. That word simply means He's lifted up. He's exalted. But it also carries the idea of praise, of holding in honor, of clothing with splendor and majesty to render something excellent. It also means to cause the dignity and the worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. All of these apply to the glorification of Jesus Christ having been risen from the dead. I like how Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined glorification. He said this, quote, Glorification means full and entire deliverance from sin and evil in all their effects and in every respect, body, soul, and spirit. The whole man will be completely and entirely delivered from every harmful effect of sin, every tarnishing, polluting effect of sin. End quote. That's a great definition. The removal of every uh, form of sin and evil which would tarnish every component of the person. Soul, spirit, and body. So in Christ's case, where Christ had no sin of his own, but remember, he willingly took our sin upon himself. He was polluted because of our sin. He took the filthy rags that were on us and he dressed himself in shame, in order that he would be our substitute, take our punishment on that cross. And so because he took our sin upon himself and the wages of sin, what is deserved because of our sin is death, he also became subject to death for a time. Death had dominion over Jesus Christ for a time. 
He was conquered for a time, it seemed. But God, praise God, did not allow His Holy One to see corruption. He did not allow Him to decay in the grave. He raised Him on the third day before corruption set in. And so the Scripture says, for the death that He died, referring to Christ, He died to sin once for all time. It was an effective, vicarious death for all His own of all time. But the life that he lives, he lives to God, and that is in the present active tense. He continues to live for God. He lives forever. He, he has no end to his life. He is everlasting. He is victorious over death. He is victorious over sin. He is victorious over Satan. So when Paul says that we may be glorified together, he's saying in the same manner that Christ has already been entirely delivered from sin in every respect, all vestiges of corruption and death have been removed, in the same manner will we be delivered from sin in every respect. And you know if you've been um, with us in this series that we have been brought to life by the Spirit of God. That's one of the aspects, um, a glorious aspect of the ministry of the Spirit. He has brought us to life. In the inner man, we have been made new. We have a new inner man, which is still incarcerated, for lack of a better word, in a body of death, a body of sin and flesh. We have been made new, and that new man is created in holiness and righteousness is not able to sin. The sin is still dwelling in us, however, in our flesh, in our human faculties, in our old ways of thinking and feeling and, and willing, desiring. But the Lord one day will remove even that sinful body. It will drop, and He will create a new body for us that is fashioned like the glorious body of Christ so that we may be glorified together that means that we would share in His glory. Just as we are now sharing in His sufferings, so we will share in His very glory, His exaltation. And since Christ has already been glorified, and indeed He has, we who are in union with Him are guaranteed the same future. Is that comforting? It is. I want you to listen to some of the ways that our glorification, our final glorification is described in the Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says this to Timothy, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So, to be glorified is to live with Christ. Finally, to live without death as a possibility anymore, without corruption. To reign with him in his eternal kingdom. That is a picture of our glorification. Or consider what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 Starting in verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal, that is body, must put on immortality. So here's another description of our glorification. It is that our, incorrupt, our corrupted body is going to be changed to an incorruptible body. That means not capable of decay, not capable of death and destruction. And our mortal body will become immortal, unable to die, ever. That change will happen in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, when Christ returns and the trumpet sounds that is a glorious day we are looking forward to. That is a terrifying day for the ungodly who will seek to have the rocks fall on them and crush them so they don't have to face the, the wrath of the Lamb. But for you, church, a glorious day of final deliverance. 
or even your body will be made like His. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this regarding our glorification in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body. He will literally change the schema of our body, our humility, or the body of our humiliation, that it may be conformed to His glorious body, according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. That's just another way of saying the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in glorified exaltation at the right hand of the Father, that same power will be at work to transform your lowly body to a glorious body that you cannot imagine. I want to give you one more in Revelation chapter 21. This is John's vision of um, the new heaven and the new earth. He says in Revelation 21, 3 and following, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So here's another way of thinking of our glorification. There won't be any suffering. The suffering that we endure here will all be gone. It will all be removed. No sorrow, no death, only glory, dwelling with the immortal, invisible, wonderful God whom we will see face to face in the face of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the process, the very process, in fact, that the Father used with the Son And because we are in union with Him, He is doing the same with us. He suffered and then was exalted. We suffer now and then we will surely be exalted. This is the path of glory. The path that our Savior, Jesus Christ Himself, trod. So should we expect any different? No. So what is the comfort? What is the sweetness in knowing that suffering for Christ prepares us for glory? Well, we know, first of all, that there is a certainty that we will be glorified with Him because He already has been glorified. And He goes before us as the captain of our salvation who Himself was perfected through sufferings. Not that He needed any perfecting in His divinity. He was perfect. But in His humanity, He learned obedience, the Scripture says. He became subject to the will of God in the flesh so that He might establish a perfect track record of obedience for us. That very track record is what is given to us in our justification when we trust in Him by faith. That's that's the glory of our salvation in Christ. It is all of God. So, we know that we will be glorified certainly with Him that we will have new bodies, that will not have any vestige of sin or corruption any longer, which can never get sick, which can never sorrow, which can never die. Suffering, loved ones, is not some aberrant path. It's not some unintended path that we unfortunately stumble through, but is the very path that prepares us for glory. Let us remember that. So first of all, the suffering is... It prepares us for glory. It prepares us. Secondly, it it is purposed by God. It's purposed by God. Who is it that is preparing us for this glorification with Christ? But God Himself. This suffering is never accidental. It is not random. It is not outside of God's will or His providence. Yes, we understand that there is a spectrum to the suffering. It it can come from various sources, but they are all what we should call secondary sources. The world, the devil, 
our own flesh. Those are all secondary sources of suffering. They are not the root. What is the root? The Lord God Himself. The Lord Himself. It is He who ordains our sufferings. He is the one who, as you remember in Romans 8.14, by His Spirit is leading us. He leads us. And where does He lead us? Well, He brings us to repentance first. He humbles us. And then He exalts us by pointing us to Jesus Christ so that we would see our salvation is in Him entirely. And then we walk a path that is a path of suffering. That's all the leading of the Spirit of God Now, we have to understand, he is never, the Lord is never the author of sin. He cannot tempt anyone nor be tempted by anyone. But in his sovereign divinity, he is able to orchestrate all things for the glory of God. He is able to use the devil, for example, as a tool to accomplish his purposes, his divine purposes. It's so often, I think, that Christians attribute suffering especially, and suffering for Christ to the work of Satan. And it's right. He is a factor. We don't discount that. But I want you to listen to the words of our Lord while he was in the garden the night before he went to the cross. He said this in John 18, verse 11, The cup which my Father has given me, shall I not drink it? The cup which my Father has given me. What was the suffering that Christ had endured leading up to that point? He had the powers of darkness in evil men, and the devil himself engaged against him to bring him to the cross and to kill him, to put out his light, so they thought. But it was God who ultimately delivered Christ by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. Amen? That's right. Listen to this quote from Arthur Pink, um, who is a wonderful, godly, was a wonderful, godly pastor in the early 1900s, an itinerant Bible teacher and an author of many books. He wrote this, How frequently God's saints see only Satan as the cause of their troubles. They regard the great enemy as responsible for much of their sufferings. But there is no comfort for the heart in this. There's no comfort for the heart in this. We do not deny that the devil does bring about much that harasses us. But above Satan is the Lord Almighty exclamation point. The devil cannot touch a hair of our heads without God's permission. And when he is allowed to disturb and distract us, even then it is only God using him to try us. Let us learn then to look beyond all secondary causes and instruments to that one, capital O, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, and might. Amen. The devil is a secondary cause. So is the world of men. So is our flesh. God is the first mover. God is supreme. He is almighty. You've probably heard this. Martin Luther had at one point said, even the devil is God's devil. To be used by God's glorious purposes or for his glorious purposes. Totally under his authority. He cannot do anything to us apart from the will of God. We need to start thinking in those terms, loved ones. Our God is sovereign. Nothing and no one can thwart His eternal purposes. Every one of them will come to pass. And that is truly comforting. That is very comforting if you think and you understand that despite all the malevolence, all the hatred in this world the hatred of the devil, the hatred of our flesh who wants, which wants to destroy us, that all of those are allowed to come against us, yes, but they are overridden by the sovereign will of a loving Father, not a malevolent evil source. They are overridden by a loving Father who is orchestrating and directing all things for our good and for His glory. So all suffering is purposed by God. And another part of understanding this purposing is to know this, that every suffering is measured out precisely for us. It's not poured out randomly. It is poured out precisely by the Lord. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not, notice this, allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That is a very important doctrinal truth with regard to God's sovereignty and with regard to our suffering. In this particular context, our temptations. Our temptations. The Lord never tempts us to sin, but He does allow us to be tempted by those secondary causes. And the Lord knows, here's the comfort, exactly how much temptation each of us can bear. He will not overwhelm you to the point where you are utterly cast down and destroyed in total despair. Why? Because He always provides the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. He doesn't keep you out from the trouble, but He promises a way of escape. What is that? He is the escape. You run to Him as a fortress, as your shield, as your defender, as your protector, and you will find comfort for your souls when you are tempted. Run to His Word. Run to prayer. Run to fellowship with God's people where you can pray and read His Word together. Thank you, Lord. He will never overwhelm us ultimately. See, He is a a good Father. And a good Father corrects His children. And we know this in Hebrews chapter 12 about the chastening hand of the Lord. And I love the comparison that the author uh, to the Hebrews gives with regard to the chastening that is the, the disciplinary action of a father toward his children, corrective action, with regard to the Lord. Listen to this comparison in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, and I'm just going to read starting in verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, if you bear up under it, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, now here's the comparison. We have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly fathers, indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them. But He, the Father, our Lord, for our profit. For our profit. In other words, every chastening, every corrective measure, every suffering that the Lord would allow in our lives is measured out precisely that he would get exactly the result that he intends. Every chastening is a profit to us. Not so with our earthly fathers. We've had earthly fathers who maybe were not very good earthly fathers. Or if we've had earthly fathers who did love us and who did seek to correct us and chasten us, they don't always get it right, do they? I certainly don't always get it right. God help me. But the Lord always gets it right. His suffering that He allows is perfectly poured out to achieve His purpose. And what is His purpose in verse 10 there? But that we should be partakers of His holiness. That we should become more like Christ. Holiness, a separation, increasing separation from our own sin. Is that comforting? Yeah. None of our suffering, brothers and sisters, is ever aimless, and it's never in vain. You know, um, nothing that we suffer in this world will be lost in eternity. This is an important concept. I want you to hear um, Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. This is the Lord's word to the church at Smyrna. He says this, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer, Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
I will give you the crown of life. In other words, all suffering for Christ will be rewarded in full. You will not lose your reward. One of the tragedies of sin in this world is that men lose their rewards all the time. They, work, they can work a lifetime to accumulate an empire, wealth, whatever it might be. And all of it can be passed on to the next in line who might be a total fool and waste all of it. The reward of God, however, is never lost. All the suffering that you experience for Him in this world will be repaid with glorification in the world to come. You can count on that. Listen to how Paul puts this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. This is our corporate reading this morning. For our light affliction, that's the word for pressure, compressing two things together, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. There's an incredible amount of um, words that are being used here with significance. Paul is saying this light affliction, these pressures that are ordained for us, which are but for a moment, and that doesn't mean... It's just going to happen today or tomorrow or maybe next week. But he's talking about for this life. This is the moment because his comparison is with eternity, which lasts forever. So by comparison with everlasting life, the years we have here on this earth are a flash in the pan, really. Those afflictions are working for us. The word he uses is the Greek word katergazum. It's the same word we saw many times in Romans 7, if you remember, which means to work out to completion, to work out 100%. Those afflictions are working out to completion for us, what? A far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. The words he uses in the Greek for this far more exceeding or beyond all measure are like epithet upon epithet. He uses a word that means to throw beyond a certain mark. Then he strengthens that word with a prefix that means to really throw beyond that mark. And then he says, to really throw beyond that mark times really throw beyond that mark. In other words, (laughs) way more than you can even possibly imagine. There is a weight of glory that is being worked out now through these sufferings which are ordained by God As we do what? Look at the things which are not seen. Those are the things that are eternal. In other words, as we look to the Lord, to His Word, not to the things of this earth and time, but it's to the contemplation, to the consideration of spiritual truth, as we do that, we are able to bear up under these sufferings so that they become light. And they, in fact, are working an eternal weight of glory which will be repaid on that last day and forever. So, brothers and sisters, if we know, if we know, this is the point, now you are to know these things. If we know that our sufferings for Christ are purposed by God, that they are precisely measured out, they will never ultimately overwhelm us, they will never crush us to the point of despair, and actually, to the contrary, they are working out an eternal weight of glory, then does that change our perspective on suffering for Christ? It really should. In fact, we should never, we should never shy away from this suffering. We should embrace it. We have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We have been given a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of a sound mind. This is the sound mind, the understanding of the sweetness that God has designed into suffering for Christ for His namesake. So suffering prepares us for glory. It is purposed by God. Thirdly, it purges our sin. Purges our sin. And at the same time, makes us more like Christ. It purges our sin. Um, Our brother... Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He preached a sermon once titled, The Sweet Uses of Adversity. The Sweet Uses of Adversity that I was blessed by. And I just want to share a small portion of the sermon 
um, anecdotally, he, he tells a story of the little plant. This little plant was small and was stunted in its growth because it was positioned under a large spreading oak tree. And little plant valued the shade and the quiet rest that the large tree afforded, perfectly content to stay right where he was. And then Spurgeon goes on to say, but a blessing is planned for the little plant. And what is that blessing? Well, the woodsman comes with his sharp axe, and he begins to chop down the tree, and he fells that large oak. And the plant begins to weep and to cry and to say, my shelter is departed. Every rough wind will blow on me, and every storm will seek to uproot me. The little plant's in despair. But what little plant didn't realize is that now that the large oak is taken out of the way, the, the sun and the rain showers would be able to fall fully and directly on little plant and cause him to grow and to blossom and to bear fruit in a way that it never could have under the comforts of the large oak tree. What's the lesson here? God often tests us by removing our comforts to see where our heart really lies, to see where our loves really are. Those large, comfortable oaks in your life, brothers and sisters, could be money, health, loved ones. And when the Lord takes those things away, um, He exposes the hidden idols of the heart. He shows um, misplaced dependence, misplaced love, misplaced obedience, misplaced service, misplaced reverence and awe, the fear of the Lord. He convinces us that we've been trusting in these idols of the heart, really anything that would compete with the Lord as having the first place in our hearts, which was His intent. And He, by His grace, grants us repentance to see that those are, in fact, idols, that we might confess and turn back to Him and love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And it's in this way that the Lord purges us of sin, makes us more like Christ, which really is His ultimate purpose. That's what we're going to be getting to in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. There's His purpose. Excuse me. That we might be conformed to Christ. And what is it that Jesus Christ was like in His humanity? Consider this. He was 100% dependent upon God. He was 100% obedient to God. He loved the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He never served another idol, and he always stood in awe only of his Father. Is that true of us as well? Are we 100% conformed to that image? No, we are not. And so, here we go. He will continue to use sufferings, pressures, trials, persecutions to keep chiseling away at us to take away everything which prevents us from being like Christ. That process is painful, but necessary and done by the hand of a loving Father. There's sweetness in the suffering, brothers and sisters. Suffering prepares us for glory. It's purposed by God. It purges our sin and makes us more like Christ. Lastly, it proves our faith is genuine. It proves our faith is genuine. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Just listen along. This is the parable of the sower. And as we know in this parable, the, there are four classes of soil. Um, the Lord is the sower of the seed who goes out to sow. And the seed falls on different ground, doesn't it? 
And I want you to um, take a look with me at verse 5 or just listen along. This is the, the second class of soil. The first class is sowed on the wayside. The birds of the air come and devour it. Verse 5 of Mark 4, some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth and in, immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Now, if we look down at verse 16, we have the explanation of what that means by our Lord to his disciples. He says this in verse 16, These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure for a time. What do they endure for a time? Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake. This is another way of saying suffering for Christ. When they are presented with suffering for Christ's sake, immediately they stumble. The word in the Greek that's used there is the English word scandal. They're scandalized. They are offended. They won't endure, in other words. They have zero ability to endure the scorching heat of suffering with Christ. It, it withers them and they fall away immediately. The world has no ability to endure suffering, shame, ridicule for Christ. Those pressures will drive them away. But for the believer, what happens with the believer? See, let's not forget the, that there is a fourth class of soil here, a good soil, where the seed goes in and it takes root and it produces a crop, some 30-fold, some 60, some 100-fold. How does that happen? It happens underneath that same sun of adversity that withered and killed class two of the soil, those that had no root in themselves, those who were superficial hearers of the word. The same pressures are come to bear now on the good soil, and it's through the adversity that they grow and they actually produce fruit. And what is that fruit? Well, the fruit of the Spirit we know is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. In the suffering. In the suffering. How often do we think about the fruit of the Spirit in the context of suffering? Brothers and sisters, this is the injunction, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Even in suffering for Christ, we are enabled, we are commanded to rejoice through the suffering, because the fruit of the Spirit is being born in us despite the adversity, because it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Unbelievers have no ability to rejoice in suffering for Christ. They have no ability to suffer for Christ. Do you have the ability to suffer for Christ? Are you persevering despite the sufferings that you have already endured for Christ? That tells you, that's a proof that you are the genuine article, that you are the good soil, that the Lord is doing a work of grace in your heart. You belong to Him. You're a son of God. You're a true, trial, true child, and if so, you're an heir of God, a joint heir with Christ. Hmm. James says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. You see, it's all about having the right perspective on suffering, isn't it? It's about understanding that there is a sweetness in the suffering because God is purposing that suffering for glory. And that's the only way that we can count it all joy when you fall into these various trials. 
Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, our call to worship this morning, said this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You want to know if you have genuine faith? The Lord is going to prove it to you by testing you with fire. With fire. Those are these sufferings, the trials, the pressures. That's the only way that you'll ever know that you belong to Him. It's not possible to know that you are genuine without suffering for Him. Without the purging influence of his fire, a refining fire that will draw the impurities, the dross, the sin away from your life. And as he shows us that now in our lives as we walk with him, we can be assured our faith will be found genuine to the praise and honor and glory of God at the revelation of Christ that last day. You can know it for sure. I love the sovereignty and the glory of our God, how He can take secondary causes and change them or use them for His own glory. And we see that in the life of Job, don't we? Job is described as a man who was blameless, upright, one who feared God and one who shunned evil, turned away from evil. And what did the Lord allow in Job's life? He allowed Satan to touch him. And to touch him very personally, to take away his children, to take away his business, to take away even his health, to afflict him to the point of death, but he wasn't allowed to take his life by God's sovereign decree. And God, through this allowance, strips Job away of the comforts that he surely had in his life, those oaks that were in his life. And at first we see that he blesses the name of God. But then over time, he begins to accuse God. He begins to question God. In other words, the sin of Job's heart begins to be drawn out. And it's not the three friends, the three counselors, so-called, but it's Elihu who comes alongside him and speaks the word of God and prepares him for God coming to him as a whirlwind, where God discloses more of his omnipotence and his glory to Job, which brings Job down to the dust, humbles him, so that Job could say, I had heard of you before by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. He knew something more, a deeper intimate knowledge of God through this allowance of suffering. And did Job deserve that? I mean, was that Caused by Job in some way? No. No, that was the mistake of the three counselors. Job was upright. He was a man who trusted in the Lord. That's why he was righteous. He was declared righteous by the grace of God, trusting in Him. And yet, God had a lesson that He was showing to Job and to Satan and to the angels, to all who were looking on. And it's this, and I love the way our brother Spurgeon put this. This is in that same sermon on adversity. He said this, and so God points to his child, or pointed to his child, Job, and said, see there, see what I can do. I can make flesh and blood more mighty than the most cunning spirit. I can make poor, feeble, foolish man more than a match for all the craft and might of Satan. Isn't that wonderful? God is able to put Satan to shame, and he does that by using his people as trophies of his grace, as exhibits of his grace, that he would receive the glory. I'm more powerful than anyone else and anything else. This knowledge, brothers and sisters, just in closing, this is the ammunition that we need because the devil is prowling. He he seeks to devour us. He seeks to bring temptation and lies to turn us against God, to sin against Him, to tell us there's nothing in Christianity or that you are not a Christian because you are suffering for Christ. And here's our ammunition to come back with Him 
Uh, I'm going to read you a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because he really captured it well. He said this, We must not allow the devil to frighten us and to say that the promises of God are not true or that if they are true, we are clearly not partakers in them because we are suffering. Turn on him and say, thank you very much. You are not as clever as you think you are because what I am enduring is a proof to me that I am a child of God. The world governed by you is treating me exactly as it treated him, Christ. If I belonged to you, I would not be having this treatment. Thank you. You are giving me a proof of the fact that I am a Christian. That is the way to deal with the devil. Resist him, turn the scriptures on to him, and he has nothing to say. He flees. End quote. We have a great assurance, a great sweetness in the midst of the suffering that we belong to Christ, that these things would not be happening to us if we were still slaves of the devil um, doing his will. He'd have no issue with us, but he has an issue with us now that we've been delivered from his strong grip by one who is a stronger man, the Lord Jesus Christ who has set us free. And brothers and sisters, he is Christ is sympathetic. He, he knows your sufferings. He knows what you're going through. He knows those hidden things of the heart that you never even vocalize. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. In other words, we have a high priest who can and does sympathize with our weaknesses. He, Christ, was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Is Christ sympathetic to our suffering? Yes. Hebrews 2.18, For in that He Himself, Christ, was, has suffered being tempted, He is able to aid those who are tempted. He's your help. He's your comfort. Run to Him. Pour out your heart to Him. We're not trying to minimize the, the idea of suffering at all. To the contrary, pour out your heart to Him and He will bear you up so that the affliction, which is so heavy in and of itself, feels light because of Christ. Do what Peter said Christ did in his sufferings, which is when he, reviled, when he was reviled against, he didn't revile in return. When he was threatened, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Who's that? To his father. He kept on entrusting himself and waited for the Lord who is the great vindicator, the one who is our captain, our warrior, who will fight our battles for us and win. I hope you see this morning that there is a tremendous sweetness in suffering. It prepares us for glory. It's purposed by God. It purges us of sin and makes us like Christ. And it proves our faith is genuine. Press on, faithful saints. Press on to the end. Be faithful unto death, however that comes in your life. And He will give you the crown of life. His grace is sufficient. In fact, it is super abounding toward you. It does not have a bottom, a limit to you. The sufferings of this life are many, but in the light of eternity and with Christ with us. They are a light momentary affliction. We're going to talk more about that next time. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His blessing on His Word. <clears throat> Father, we thank You this morning <clears throat> for the wonderful promises of Scripture <clears throat> that You are with us. That, Father, even the sufferings are purposed by You. Nothing is random. Nothing is in vain. Father, all is precisely measured out for your people, a cup that each of us has to drink, that you will enable us to drink, Lord. And though it is bitter, at the same time, there is a sweetness to it, <clears throat> a sweetness because of what you are working through this suffering, which is an eternal weight of glory. Father, help us to meditate on these things. Help us to give ourselves to the contemplation of these truths for it is as we meditate on the eternal things, the things not seen, that this glory will be worked out more and more. Father, thank you. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for um, the light that pierces the darkness. Thank you for 
turning us away from lies and from loving lies to loving what is right, forgiving us ears to hear, and an appetite, Lord, an appetite that we would desire you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.